Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for this opportunity of gathering together around your word. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we can be ministered to. And so I pray that you would prepare the heart of each one here, that we might hear your word, hear from you, and know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And so, Father, I also pray for your anointing, recognizing that on my own I have nothing that's worth sharing. But I pray that you would use me to minister your word to these, your people. And I pray all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> you know, it's such an amazing thing that there are so many people in the world that they really don't even know the purpose of man. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a little frog, a toad maybe. But anyway, they don't know the purpose of man. And um, I was reading an article this week that absolutely fascinated me. And uh, what caught my attention is the title of the article is um, the theory of evolution no longer believed. What? And it was a secular article. So I started reading it, and of course they go on and they're, they're explaining why Darwin was wrong, which is what we've been doing for a long time anyway, that it just doesn't make sense. Life comes from life. And, and the very fact that you have you know, all kinds of uh, crazy things happening, you know, somehow you had water that came upon the earth and was struck by lightning, and the ionization caused maybe a one-celled, um, you know, whatever it was, creature, and then it finally went into amoeba and became us. And it is absolutely the most... And you have to remember, I'm a science major. I was, anyway. And um, it makes no sense, logically. So here's the new theory. It was aliens. <laughs> It was people from a much higher uh, form of, of intelligence that came and planted us here. But, of course, the obvious question to be asked is, where did they come from? How much easier it is to, to really accept the fact that there's a creator? I mean, I can tell you right now that there is absolutely no way the sophistication of man and the sophistication of nature and all the world around us could have just happened or been planted by a seed. We are a creation of Almighty God. God created the heavens and the earth. And I love it. It says, in the beginning, God created time, space, matter you have there. He created everything. And the reason it's so important for us to understand that is to know our, our purpose in life. Like we're going to be studying here in Leviticus in just a moment, and um, we have to realize that all of this was given for one purpose, for us to have a relationship with our Creator. Because if there is a Creator, which there is, and His name is Yahweh, Almighty God, Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it, and He created us for one reason, to have fellowship with us. When you read the account in Genesis, it tells us that God in the cool of the day used to come in and literally, physically, somehow, I don't know how it was, have fellowship with Adam and Eve. Then that fellowship was broken because of sin, because God can't stand in the presence of sin. But God, right from the very beginning, provided a way of, for man's atonement that he might come back into relationship with God, and it was by the shedding of blood. Because Adam and Eve, <clears throat> they tried to cover themselves in their own devices. Remember, they took fig leaves and... I've been to the Middle East a number of times. you ever see a fig leaf? You don't want to put fig leaves on. But anyway, uh, they covered themselves in fig leaves. And the reality is that God came and saw their nakedness. And, and he's, anyway, he recognized the fact that they turned from him. 
And God slew animals and took their skins and covered them. And so right from the beginning, it was by the shedding of blood that sin was forgiven or was covered or atoned for. And so we have this whole account of man. You know, we read from Genesis to where we are in Leviticus, and God is setting apart a people for himself, which was always his desire. And everything that we read in the Old Testament, what does it tell us? Everything that was written in the past was written for our learning that through constant endurance of the word we might have hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ. And so we read the word, and when we look at the Old Testament, it's God's perfection, because some of these things we read are difficult. But it's God's perfection. He's laying out perfection. But then he's saying, but I know you aren't perfect. And so therefore, I'm going to send someone into the world who is perfect, who will live a perfect life and will be the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest that all your sin might be atoned for. And Jesus is the one who did that. And his atoning sacrifice is so amazing because he rose from the dead. He's a living sacrifice. His sacrifice is continuous. And what the important thing, what's so important about that is, is that, I mean, maybe I'm the only one, but since I've been saved, I still fall to sin. I know you, you don't. I'm sure you don't. But since I've been saved, there have been areas of sin that I fall to. And I need the continuous atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point of his love for us. Such love, such glorious love that God would shed his life for us. Now, you know, I, I think of, of um, how gracious God is. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, he gives us so many opportunities and so many available. You know, there is so much available for us to grow in him and to draw closer to him. And one of the things that I'm thankful for is in a way, I had a crazy life, and I'm thankful for it. Now, I didn't have a crazy life because I was beaten and my parents were awful. My parents were wonderful parents. They were very loving, but we were very poor. My father was a coal miner. As a matter of fact, he quit school in sixth grade because he was the oldest son and his father died, and that's just the way it was back then, and he started working in the mines. My mother quit school in eighth grade to work in a silk mill. And uh, we didn't have a car until I was 13 years old or 14, somewhere around there. It was a 49 Chevy. It was a coupe. And my father had to take a hacksaw and cut the back, you know, the window rest, had to cut that out. And then he put an old car seat in the trunk so that we could sit in that car seat and our little heads would be up above, you know, where the, where the window seat was. And, of course, we were, it was quite a crew to see because my mother and father both had bright red hair. And my brother, all my brothers and I had bright red hair, and so we looked like a clown car. You know, we'd stop, and all of us would jump out, and here we are. Uh. You know, and, and then I, I you know, you, you've heard my testimony a number of times. I had a very hard time in school. When I first started school, I, I, it was just difficult for me. I, I failed what we used to call it back there, flunked. I failed first, second, and third grade. And I was considered a slow learner, and I was put in a special class. And it wasn't until I got in high school, and I was, it was a total accident. I was put in Regents Algebra. If you're from New York, you know what Regents are. And uh, today it's called Course 1. And I actually got a 100 on the Regents. And they realized that there's something off. I had a, and what it was, I had a hard time learning. To make a long story short, I went on, 
and I finished my bachelor's, I finished my master's, I finished my doctorate. I was a school teacher, science teacher, I was a, um, a, a high school principal, and then gloriously called into the ministry 38 years ago or something like that. And that's God. Do you understand that? That's God. And the only reason I have the courage to stand up in front of you this morning is by the Holy Spirit because of who God is. God is awesome. And I'm just an example of what God can do. Do you know what I'm saying? I wasn't sharing that to brag or to show you, oh, the poor background I came from. I was sharing that with you to show you how gracious God is because my father was saved. And I can remember when I was in college, I'd come home and he had a big pulpit Bible, that, that Bible under there, that actual Bible, that's from 1843. And my father used to have this big old pulpit Bible that the pastor of our church gave him that he would use a big magnifying glass to see. It's the only way he could see it. And I'd come home and he'd say, see here, Frank, you've got to be born again. <clears throat> and I'd say, Dad, I'm glad for you. That's not for me. That's not my deal. And uh, my father never saw me saved. He died between my junior and senior year of college. And, um, but I know he knows I'm saved, and I know one day I'm going to see him again. And uh, when Vi and I, my, my, you know, Vi and I, my wife and I, when we got saved, my mother said, I had to put up with it with your father, and now I'm going to have to put up with it with the two of you. And then she got saved. <laughs> and she just loved the Lord. And um, she's, she's with him right now. And I'm so thankful that God called me into the ministry because it's an unusual thing. I know I'm going off in little tangents. When I was 10 years old, I was taken to the hospital. I had acute appendicitis. And back in, I, I had never been to the hospital before. I was born at home. My grandmother was the midwife. When you lived in Lewis Park, you lived in a coal mining community like that, you didn't go to the doctors. I mean, you just didn't. And so, anyway, I was born at home, and when I, but when I was 10 years old, I had this acute appendicitis. They had to take me to the hospital. I was scared to death because back then the rules were different. The parents couldn't stay with the child and all that, you know, and, and, and I remember praying. I said, Dear God, if you heal me, I promise I'll grow up and be a minister. And I was healed. I, the next morning, the doctors came in for the surgery, and I said, I'm all better. <laughs> I said, I'm all better. And um, they, back then, they used to do a blood test and check your white count and to see whether you had you know, acute appendicitis or not. And I was healed. But the doctor said, he'll be back. This, this is just a temporary, you know, um, what do you call it? You know, anyway, he's, he's freed from it for a little bit, but it's going to relapse again. You, it's, it's definitely going to come back. Never did. I mean, I'm uh, 74 years old, and I still have my appendix. And the point I'm getting at is that I made that promise to God, and I made it from my heart at 10 years old. And then I went and I talked to my pastor, but you have to understand I came from very organized religion, and the pastor, you know, was you know, through all the major seminaries, colleges and seminaries and, and so forth. And so when I told him I wanted to grow up and be a minister, he looked at me, and by the way, at that time, my father was the custodian of the church. He had to leave the mines because of silicosis, the black lung, and he was working as custodian of our church. And so I went and I talked to the pastor, and I said, I feel the Lord's calling me to the ministry. Well, Frank, you have to understand 
The ministry is a, a very difficult profession to get into. You have to do all of this. And basically what he was telling me is you're too dumb to do it. It's really what he was telling me. And um, the point is, here I am. <laughs> and so we have to understand God's grace is shown in so many ways. And I think that the Lord has shown his grace to me so that I can relate to people. You know what I mean? I'm not someone who... And not that there's anything wrong with it. I knew people that grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth that are the best Christians I've ever known. Chuck Smith grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. But I didn't. And the Lord has used it in, you know, in so many ways. And what we're getting into in Leviticus this morning, we're in Leviticus chapter 21. And what we're getting into this morning is the priesthood. And we have, and I brought all this up because I'm a pastor and, and we're going to be talking about the priesthood this morning. But one of the things we have to understand is we don't have a set-apart priesthood any longer. Did you know that? We do not have a set-apart priesthood any longer. You know, you know why? We're all priests. A holy nation belonging to God to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. We are a royal priesthood. We're going to be reading the verse in a moment that points that out. So we're all priests. We're priests of the Lord. And what was the purpose of a priest? A priest is, is someone who interceded between God and man. How are we priests? We tell people about Jesus. We intercede between God and man. We say, man, call out to your God, and he'll give you eternal salvation. So that's how we are priests. We're priests by virtue, by virtue of evangelism, by sharing our faith with others. And, um, but yet, in the time in which we live, we do have some that are set apart. We call them clergy, and, uh, like pastors and, and uh, you know, missionaries and, and so forth. And we do have some that are set apart for the purpose of presenting the Word of God. And so when we read this about the priesthood, we're going to remember that that was the perfection that God intended for priests at that time, but then we're going to see how it applies to pastors, to missionaries, and to elders today. So if you'd open your Bibles along with me to Leviticus chapter 21, starting with verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and, sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself uh, for the dead among his people. Now, let me share with you what that meant. If you came across a dead person, you were considered unclean for seven days. And if you were attending a dead person, you were considered unclean for seven days. Well, being a priest, it wasn't... Um, a lot of times, it, it just didn't work out for you to be unclean for seven days because you had a ministry that you were responsible for doing. And so the law was that a priest was supposed to refrain from doing anything, including being around the dead, that would make him unclean and invalid for ministry for seven days. And so that's the point of that law, if you're wondering what it was. Okay. So anyway, none shall defile himself for the dead, uh, for the dead among his people, except, it's interesting, for his relatives who are nearest to him. Now notice this. This is interesting. It's one of the first times... That, the, uh, that we read, this w woman is put first, okay, which are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, 
and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband, for her he may defile himself. In other words, if a woman was married, it didn't mean that she wasn't any longer part of the family, but she was now part of her husband's family, you see. But if she was unmarried and near to him, he could defile himself for her as well. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among the people to profane himself. They shall not make any bald place on their heads. We'll talk about that in a moment. Nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to uh, to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the offering of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Therefore, you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. I love that. Notice how many times that's in there, the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you. For I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, and she shall be burned with fire. He who is the high priest among the brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is, considered, who is consecrated to wear the garments, he shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, they would do that sometimes in sorrow, like if someone died or, or some other reason that caused great sorrow. Nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. Nor, in other words, uh, a priest, just a, in the general order, could defile himself for a near family. But a high priest, when he was anointed with oil to serve the Lord, to take the offering into God, he couldn't defile himself for any reason. Nor shall he uh, go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not, make, he shall not marry. But he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. Nor shall he profane his posterity among his people. For I, the Lord, sanctify him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has a defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. Now, we're going to read this, and, and you're going to think, That seems unfair, but we'll talk about the, the spiritual implication and meaning of it in a moment. Verse 18, For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame or has a... Uh, a, a, a marred face or any, limp t or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf. And by the way, um, my niece uh, Facebooked me yesterday and told me, she said, did you know that last Friday was Na National Short Person Week or Short Person Day? And I was so disappointed that I missed out on it. I didn't receive a card from any of you, you know, congratulating me on Short Person Day, but... Anyway, if I was back in that day, I couldn't serve anyway. Uh, or a man who has a defect in his eyes or eczema or a scab uh, or is a uni. No man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may not 
but listen to this. He may eat, this is important, he may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go near the veil to approach the altar, because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons, and to all the children of Israel. You know, once again, it's important to keep in mind that God intended for the whole nation of Israel to be priests. Did you know that? In fact, if you want to uh, keep your marker here in Leviticus and go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19, we're going to pick up with verse 5. Exodus 19... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Exodus 19, verse 5. And God is speaking. He says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you shall be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, listen to what he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, if you compare that with 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, and I'll read it to you. You can write that down, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. See, it's taken right from Exodus. A holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So every one of us are priests of the Lord. And as priests of the Lord, we have a responsibility to proclaim the word of God, to call people out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's so amazing to me. In fact, probably the most amazing, uh, the greatest question I, I will have when I stand before the Lord, I probably won't have any questions because then I'll know, but when I stand before the Lord, is I can't understand how everyone didn't get saved. How can you be presented with the gospel and not accept it? I really don't understand that because I've been around long enough and I've been in the ministry and in education long enough to be able to observe life. And when there are people that just go along the way of this world, you know, following all the sin and all the temptations of this world, their life becomes ruined. And if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, I would have been down that road. Because the amazing thing is, I never uh, smoked or drank alcohol when I was in the Army. I went in the Army right after high school. That was in the 60s. But when I started going to college, I started smoking and I started drinking. By the time I graduated from college, I was an alcoholic. I was a respected alcoholic. I didn't drink during the week, even when I started teaching. I took my responsibilities seriously. But when I would go home Friday night, I was drunk until Monday morning. And then I got saved, like the song we sang. Then I got saved. And I had a, it's not like I got saved and it was like, wow, I'm not, I don't even desire a drink anymore. I did. But I committed it to the Lord. And it was difficult. I quit over and over. And I tried to make bargains with the Lord. Because I, believe it or not, I used to drink Boilermakers. Any of you who were old enough to know what that is, it's a, a bottle of beer and a shot of whiskey. And uh, so I said, Lord, I'll just drink beer now that I'm saved. Well, I just drank more beer. So then I said, Lord, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll drink wine. I don't even like wine. 
And so I became a wino. <laughs> and then finally, the Lord, I can still remember it. I was driving in the car, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, you have to abstain completely. And that was a revelation to me. And it wasn't like it was easy, because it was right around the holidays, right around Christmas, the Lord saying, stop drinking. And I did. And with God's help, I made it through the first week, which was very difficult. I made it through the second week, which was difficult. I made it through the third week, which was a little easier. And I made it through the fourth week, and it wasn't a problem, and I haven't drank since. That's 36 years ago, 8 years ago. Four, no, it's 41 years ago. And I haven't had a drink of alcohol. That's how God is. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but if we commit our way to him, he's going to give us the strength that we need to accomplish anything he's called us to do. And so we have to realize that we're a chosen people to call people out of the ways of this world. People that are involved in the ways of this world are messed up. And there's so many times that Pastor Frank Jr. and I, and I'm sure all of you have had opportunity to meet with people that this world has taken and chewed up and spit out, and, and they're, they're messed up. And, and the thing is that if they would just commit their life to Jesus Christ completely, he'd do amazing things for them. He'd do amazing things in their life. He would turn everything around. Because the wages of sin are death, Scripture tells us. But understand, it's not just death in the sense of being separated from God. It's death in this life. You see people that are just involved in sin, sucked into all kinds of sin, they're miserable. But Jesus provides a way out. That's our priesthood. Now, as priests of the Lord, we also have a responsibility to live a holy life. Now, Understand this, when we talk about holiness in the Christian respect, we're not talking about perfection. There's only one who ever walked this terrestrial ball who is perfect, and his name is Jesus. Not Frank, or not John, or, you know, or not anyone else. His name is Jesus. He's the only one who walked this terrestrial ball perfect. So what is Christian holiness then? It's my desire for God. It's my desire to have victory. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but what it does mean is when I fall, I know I've fallen. And I don't want to stay there wallowing around in the mud puddle. I want to get backed up. I want to be washed clean by the Holy Spirit and move forward again. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian is it's not like Monopoly, that when you have a fall, you have to go back to the beginning, go back to go. Remember Monopoly, that game? As a Christian, when you fall... You get back up right where you fell, and Jesus washes you right where you are, and you keep moving forward. And what a wonderful thing it is to know that I can grow in the Lord. I can make a mistake, and I can ask God's forgiveness. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 is so clear. Completely cleanse us, and we continue moving on in the Lord. And we have to realize that our relationship with, the, with our Lord is even higher than our relationship with our family. It needs to be. Did you know that? In fact, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 10, keep your finger here in Leviticus. Actually, we've already read the portions, but Ma Matthew chapter 10, go to verse 37. 
Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. And it starts off, you know, in quotation marks. And the very first word is anyone. And I always tell people, you know who's included in anyone? Everyone. <laughs> okay? Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, there actually were, there was a group, and they were very aesthetic in their form of religion, and, and I would even doubt that they were really Christian, but they really believed that when you got saved, any family member who was unwilling to be saved or wasn't saved, you had nothing to do with them, because you love you know, Jesus more than them. That's so bogus and completely wrong. All it's saying is we're to love the Lord more than we do our family. It doesn't mean we don't love our family. It's just Jesus has to come first. How many times has loving an unsaved family member or friend, being kind to an unsaved family member or friend, brought them to Jesus? I've never experienced anyone who went up to their family and said, you know what, you're all going to hell now and I want nothing to do with you because I love Jesus more. And the family goes, I want to get saved. It doesn't work that way. What they do is they see you. They see how God's working in you. You know, my, my wife, she's, anyway, um, we, we had uh, the, the older grandchildren went to EncounterCon. In fact, Mamie is the only one that made it back to the first service. She's a trooper. But um, the rest of the girl, they get in like three this morning, and they're all crashed at our house. But we had the three little ones with us for, you know, Friday, Saturday, and today. And so my wife's over with the little girls doing their hair and getting them all ready for church. That's where, where she is. But anyway, my wife's mother, unbelievable woman, she's 98 years old. 34 years ago, when she was 64, she got saved. And part of what brought her to the Lord was seeing how Vi and I changed. I told you, I was a drinker and all that kind of stuff. And she saw how we changed. And we were involved in the ministry, and she saw how we loved the Lord and what was going on. And that is what brought her to Christ. And so now, for 34 years, getting saved at 64, for 34 years, she's walked with the Lord and loves Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And so we have to understand that loving Jesus first doesn't mean setting our family aside. It means loving them enough to love Jesus first, hoping that that love will, will actually bring them to Christ as well. What love, what glorious love. And um, also this portion goes on and, and it talks to us about the fact that um, the priest was not to mimic any of, of the um, trappings of idolatry. Remember last week we talked about the fact that uh, the Lord was talking to the children of Israel and saying, I don't want you to be like the people I'm taking you out of Egypt. And I don't want you to be like the, the people of the land you're going into, the Canaanites. Well, they worship the sun god. And when it talks about not shaving the back of the head, they used to shave the back of their head into a circle representing the sun. 
It was mimicking the sun god. And also, if you see a real Orthodox Jew, any of you who have been to Israel with us, a real Orthodox Jew, their beard is just, you know, they don't trim it and shave the edges of it for the same reason, because the pagan priests shave the edges of their beard. And so the point he's making is he doesn't want his children to mimic the ways of the sinner, of the idolater. He wants us to come after him and to seek him and he alone. And this is one of the reasons that uh, as a pastor, I don't come up here in robes. With my build, could you see me in a robe? You know what I mean? I'd look like Gandor from that movie or something. (laughs) But anyway, I don't wear a robe and I don't wear collars and stuff like that for this reason. Because God is telling us that we're not supposed to separate ourselves by our dress. And a lot of people aren't probably aware of this, but it's interesting. When you, talk, when you think of the clerical collar, who do you normally think of? Catholic priests. Actually, the clerical collar began in the Reformation, and the Reformed pastors started wearing the clerical collars to separate themselves from the Roman Catholics, because Roman Catholics at that time still wore the, wore the monk garments, the robes. And so they wore the clerical collar to separate themselves. But the point is that as a pastor and knowing the word of God, I know that a pastor is not to separate himself from the people at all. I'm supposed to look just like every one of you, except shorter. And, but you understand the point that I'm making. That's the reason I don't wear robes and I don't wear clerical collars and I don't do all that. I wear a tie once in a while just because I like to. My neck's cold. But, uh, you know, I don't try to separate. And Jesus is the one who set the example. When Jesus would go into the midst of the crowd, he just disappeared. Remember, Scripture tells us he disappeared in the crowd. Why? He, didn't, he, didn't, he just looked like everybody else. And so the clergy and all believers, we're not supposed to separate ourselves from the unsaved world by our dress or the way we look, but we separate ourselves by our love for God and our desire to serve him and to bring others to salvation. Then it says also the wife of the priest or in this case, the wife of a pastor, they also have a responsibility in behaving in a certain way. Now, what's interesting is that in this portion, it tells us that the priest and the high priest are not to marry uh, you know, someone who is a harlot or someone who's divorced and da-da-da-da-da-da-da and all those different things. But under the new covenant, is talking about this in present tense, not past tense. You know why? Our past is gone. The minute you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you were born again, he took your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Now listen, and remembers them no more. Lord, remember when I was... No, I don't remember that. He remembers them no more. And so we have to understand that our walk with the Lord is always present in future tense. Here, Lord, I'm walking with you now and desire to walk with you forever. It's not past tense. Our past is our past. Yesterday is your past as a believer. Understand that. And that's why it tells us his mercies are new how often? Every morning. Take up your cross daily and follow me. So every day with Jesus is a new day. The day you got saved, life changed. You belong to Jesus. 
But as far as serving the Lord is concerned and walking with the Lord, every day is a new day. We all know what I'm talking about. We've had days that we you know, would lay in bed at night and say, thank you, Jesus, for the day I've had and, and you know, having an opportunity to serve you. And we've also had those nights that we lay in bed and we go, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Help me, Jesus. I don't know what's wrong with me, right? We all know what I'm talking about. And so we have to realize that when it's talking about the qualifications for a pastor, qualifications for a pastor's wife, it's always talking present tense, not their past. Past is the past. Now, now it also says that children are supposed to bring honor to their parents as well. They're supposed to honor the Lord. But the reality is that there are some children, even of pastors, that don't necessarily honor the Lord. But the reality is there's nothing so wonderful as seeing a child of a believer who's kind of walked away like the prodigal son. Remember that account in the Bible? And then they come back to the Lord. And when they come back to the Lord, usually they come back hard because they realize how much they've been forgiven of. I remember a long, long time ago, and Vi and I had met and got to be somewhat friends with a a pastor and his wife. And uh, they were actually missionaries with, um, what's the the couple, and and the husband was uh, killed by the natives, and and they made a story about his life, and, and his, what was it? Jim Elliott. They were actually friends with the Elliots. They were in South America, missionaries with them. And so that's the kind of relationship they had with the Lord. And anyway, they came back to the States and continued on, and their oldest son walked away from God, not only walked away from God, but became anti-God and just broke their hearts. Their oldest son just walked away from the Lord and was just going down just this wrong road. And when he was about 45, he came back to Jesus and was gloriously saved. He probably never was Jesus, but he was gloriously saved and came back to the faith that he grew up in and became one of the most powerful speakers you've ever heard. I won't even tell you his name. He speaks all over the place, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that even when someone seems to travel far from the Lord, there's a one-step road back. You don't have to work your way back. Oh, Jesus, I messed up so much. I have to do penance, and I have to do this and that in order to work my way back. You're with the Lord instantly. Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. You're with the Lord. That's it. That's all there is to it. And so we have to understand that even if children do seem to fall away from the Lord, you know, um, there's a way back. It's a very simple way back. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27, when it's talking about the calling uh, of all of us as believers, but specifically as a pastor, and I love what it says um, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm picking up with verse 26. For you, uh, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are, which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing things that are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. But to him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The only thing we can glory in is the Lord and that he saved our wretched souls. It's all him. But it's an amazing thing. People will read this and say, well, wow, look at the qualifications for uh, uh, you know, a pastor. He's to be the worst. <laughs> you know, not wise, not mighty, not anything. You know why? Because a man who is called to stand behind the pulpit and teach the word of God, it is so easy for him to fall to arrogance and pride. It really is. But when you stand up here and you realize, I'm nothing except what Jesus has made me. I have nothing worth sharing in my own, only his word. Then I share his word in humility. And what I mean by sharing his word in humility is I don't add anything to it. I'm not telling you, well, this is what it actually means. I'm just saying to you, this is the word of God, and that's what it means, period. Now, in, in, in James, though, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Understand when it's giving the gifts of the Spirit. Pastor and teacher is a hyphenated word. He's given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor, teachers. It's one thing. A pastor is to be a teacher. Okay, my brethren, this is James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. First time I read that, it was like, oh, why does it say that? Because I'm teaching the word of God. And if I add anything to it or take anything away from it, it's serious. It's very serious. And so I need to present to you just what's here, you know, and let you take it for what it is. And yet in Hebrews 3.17, it says, Obey your teachers and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as a man who must give an account. You know how... I mean, absolutely uh, terrified I am when I realize that I have a responsibility to give an account for you. Therefore, I don't want to give you any of my own philosophies or any of my own, you know, uh, theologies. I want to just share with you the Word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. They keep watch over you as a man who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. And then compare it to 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. It says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, it's, uh, are, um, well, are worthy a double honor, especially those um, in preaching and teaching. That's where the word reverend comes from, because double honor, that word is also re, re, you know, translated reverence, who are deserved reverence. And so the word reverend came from that. But it was never meant to be the title of a pastor. The pastor's title is pastor. You know, sometimes when I'm in different places and I'm being introduced, you know, and they'll say, Reverend Frank Thomas, or the Reverend Frank Thomas, and I think, oh, my gosh. You know, and um, that's why when I introduce myself to people, I say, hi, I'm Frank. (laughs) I try to be anyway. (laughs) And I believe the Lord also calls the wife of the pastor. And um, in 1 Timothy 3.11 and it talks about in the same way the wives 
of pastors and it gives their, you know, the requirement for behavior. And so this is why um, we have to understand that when we go to church on Sundays, and of course Sunday is the day, the first day of the week. Uh, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That's in Revelation. When we come to church on the first day of the week, we should be coming to hear the Word of God expounded upon. That's what the word expository is taken from, to have the Word of God expounded upon. Not to hear some, someone's philosophies or someone's ideas or desires. It's the Word of God. Because here's the point. If anything that we're taught or told doesn't agree with the Word of God, that teaching is wrong. I don't care how good it sounds. I don't care how much it massages our, our emotions and makes us feel good. If it is contrary to the Word of God, it is wrong. We're to compare everything to the Word and not to the teachings and philosophies of men. And um, that's the reason my, when I was working on my uh, doctoral thesis, you have to come up with, you know, and it was pure exposition is it possible. In other words, is it possible to purely expound on the Word of God? Well, it's difficult. You know why? We all have prejudice that we grew up with. Like, for instance, how many wise men were there? There weren't three wise men. It just says there were wise men that came from the east. They always traveled in caravans. There were probably 25 to 50 of them. And when Mary, you know, when Joseph took Mary into Bethlehem, what was she writing? never says that. When Paul was slain, he fell off. never says that. They walked everywhere they went. Mary might have been on a donkey, but it doesn't tell us. The only point I'm trying to make is there are so many things that we believe that are traditions. And the Word of God is telling us, no, don't go by your traditions. Go by the Word of God alone. My desire is your pastor, out of love, and, and I know Pastor Junior, his desire is the same, to preach and to teach you the Word of God without putting any frills, any, you know, toppings on it. You know what I'm saying? Father, thank you so much for your love and for your Word, and I pray that you would take what we have learned this morning and use it to encourage us in our walk with you. And I pray, Father, that you'd bless each one who's here, and if there's anyone here today, Lord, who doesn't know you, who is not saved, who is not born again, I pray this would be the day of their salvation, that they would cry out to you, Lord, forgive me a sinner, and they would receive that beautiful gift. And so, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing, causing your face to shine upon us and lead us in all righteousness. And I ask this in Christ Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.